Open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel chapter number 30. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. I want to thank the church for all of the kindness that was shown during Pastor Appreciation Month. The President and I both truly appreciate the tokens of love and uh, we thank God for a church that shows that kind of concern for for its pastors, but I'm going to turn the tables on you this morning, and uh, I want to talk about the importance of us appreciating those who are faithful members of the church, faithful servants of the Lord, if that's all right with you. I'm going to do it whether it's all right with you or not. (laughs) You know, sometimes we forget how important God's work really is. Vance Havner, the old preacher from North Carolina, uh, used to talk about getting in a rut. And whenever you get in a, in a rut, like somebody said, a rut's just a grave with both ends knocked out. And you get in a rut, and uh, boy, that's, that's a bad place for a Christian to be, to just get in a rut. And that can happen to us if we're not careful, and we need to be reminded of what really matters in life and uh, how important it is. The title of the message this morning is Staying by the Stuff, and I mention that because years ago I preached a message from this same text with the same title. I have no idea what I said, and I, I couldn't find the notes if I looked for them because the flood took care of that. But the Word of God hasn't changed. The message is still right here. And I want you to notice beginning in verse number 21 that our text is verse 24, but we're going to back up to verse 21 so you can get the connection. And it says, And David came to the two hundred men which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor, And they went forth to meet David and to meet uh, the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all of the wicked men that were of Belial of those that went with David and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And then said David, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? That's a question. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. I realize that I'm not always successful, but one of the main things I strive for in preaching is clarity. I, I, I believe in the KISS principle. There was a motivational speaker I met years ago by the name of Charles Tremendous Joan that that started the KISS principle. Well, keep it simple, stupid. 
And uh, I, I believe that's exactly what we ought to do when it comes to preaching. That's why in our Sunday school lessons, we don't take a chapter at a time or a book at a time. We take a verse at a time. We go from one verse to the other verse throughout a book of the Bible rather than just skipping over parts of it. Whenever you're dealing with any subject from the Bible, I believe a rifle shot is better than a shotgun blast. A shotgun blast is just going to scatter pellets everywhere and not really be nearly as effective as one single rifle shot that hits its mark. And I mention that because today this is a real challenge for me because I want to get right to the point But first of all, I've got to give you the big picture so you'll understand what we're dealing with here. The story has to do with David and his men doing battle against the Amalekites who had captured David's city of Ziklag. When I say captured the city, I'm talking about they destroyed their homes, they carried their wives and their children and their goods all away, and so... David and his men come back to the city, and they are exhausted already. And something we need to keep in mind is that this comes on the heels of one of David's biggest failures. As a result of Saul's opposition against him, David had gotten greatly discouraged, and he went over to the other side, if you can imagine that. He was so distraught, so dis- depressed that, that he went over to the Philistines. It's kind of like saying, look, if you don't want me here, I'll go there. And so he did, and he got over there, and he found out they didn't really want him there. And it takes this tragedy at, at his home city, Ziglag, to, to awaken him and to restore him back to his senses. The wives are taken into captivity. The children are taken into captivity. I mean, they basically lost, lost all. And the shock of that made David realize what a horrible mistake that he had made. And verse number 6 tells us that David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, so many times we depend on somebody else to encourage us and to keep us going. And boy, that's great when you get it. But you don't always get it. There comes a time when every Christian needs to learn to encourage themselves. And the only way you can do that is in the Lord. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And the very minute that he did that, it tells us in verse number 8, that he inquired of the Lord. Don't you think that would have been a good thing to do earlier before the big mistake? But it's all after the fact, the suffering and the loss and what have you. And so now he inquires of the Lord as to what he ought to do. And he is instructed to go out against the Amalekites and regain what you've lost. And that's what he did. He returned to camp was reunited with these 200 men who had stayed by the stuff. So that's where the story begins. Our story, our message. Notice in verse 9 and 10, these 200 men that I'm talking about, it says, David went 
and the six hundred men that were with him and came to the brook of Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. And David pursued he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind, which were so faint, they could not go over the brook Besor. Now I want you to notice, and again you see it in verse number 21, it says they are so faint that they could not follow David. Notice it doesn't say they would not. It says they could not. Here we see their weariness. They had pushed themselves to the limit and beyond to the place they can't go on any longer. That reminds us that we all have our limitations. That's why we should never expect the same thing out of everyone. And we better be careful about criticizing those who can't. It's not your job. It's not my job to judge whether somebody can or can't do something. And there's so many times if someone misses a service, for example, or misses several services in a row, we automatically assume that they are backslidden in their heart, that they're making up excuses, that they could be here if they wanted to be here, and you don't have a clue what's going on in their life. Now, you can believe me or not, but I'm somewhat of an expert in this matter. And I say that... Because this is one of the areas of my biggest failure in life. As a young preacher, and even whenever I was getting older, and for many years, I was so judgmental of others. You become a torment even to my wife, and I'm sure to my children, because, I mean, they'd have to be on their deathbed to say, you know, I just don't feel like going to church tonight. Because they'd get that look. And then after the look comes the cold shoulder and, you know, I might not say anything, but they got the message. Like, you know, suck it up and come on, you can do it. But I tell you, experience has a way of changing your attitude about things. There are some younger folks that have no idea what it's like to get older. You have no idea what it's like to deal with some of the problems some of the people are dealing with right now. We've got to be careful that we don't, that we don't falsely judge people. And that's what's going on here, evidently, because those 400 men, whenever they get back, they said, man, we're not giving them any of the spoils of the war. They didn't go with us. They stayed behind. Well, sure they did. They couldn't go on. What do you want them to do? But we not only see their weariness, we see the, the wisdom in this because had they tried to do something that they couldn't do, it would have hurt rather than helped. If a man is so exhausted that he can't pick up a spear or a sword, if he can't fight, he's going to be more of a hindrance than he is a help. So David left them right where they needed to be. You see, everybody doesn't have the same gift. Everybody doesn't have the same ability. Whenever it comes to sports, most of you are familiar with the term, play your position. Whatever it is. 
If you're in the outfield, you don't say, well, you know, I'm just kind of tired this inning. I, I, I don't want to walk that far. I'm, I'm going to stay out here with the, with the shortstop. I'm just going to stay there with him. It's ultimately going to catch up with you and cost your team a victory because you, you need to be out there where, where you've been positioned. The same thing is true in regards to the Lord's church. We need to learn to play our position as it were because none of us are free to just do as we please. David's a good example of that. David, remember, wanted to build the temple, right? Yeah, he thought he, you know, being a man that was after God's own heart, he asked God to build the temple. And God had another plan and said, no, David, you're not going to build the temple, but I'm going to use Solomon to do that. Now, that would have been a really good time for David to pitch a fit and start pouting because he couldn't do what he wanted to do. All right? Some people would say, well, if I can't do that, I'm not going to do anything. I've seen people like that. If they can't do what they want to do in the church, they'll leave. They'll go somewhere else. But the Lord said to David, no, you can't do that. I'm going to use Solomon to do that. So David instead supplied all of the building materials. God wouldn't let him do one thing, but he could do another. And he did that which he could. You know, God rewards us according to what we would do, not necessarily what we do. And God assured him, He said to David, He said, David, I know that it was in your heart to do that. David's reward was just as great or maybe greater than that of Solomon because as God said, it was in your heart to do it. God wouldn't allow him to do that. God had another plan. And by the way, just because we have a desire to do something doesn't mean we should do it. Doesn't mean we're qualified to do it. Whenever I was a kid, I wanted to be able to fly, you know, like Superman, jump off of a shed. Mom said I jumped off of every building in the neighborhood. You know, I thought if he could do it, someday I'll practice enough I can fly. Just because you want to do something doesn't mean you can. I remember several years ago, we were going to ordain some new deacons, and one of the fellows wasn't selected as you know one of the candidates for it. And I'll never forget. In fact, he was leading the music at that time, and he dropped out. Didn't didn't say a word to me. Just didn't show up. So I went to his home and. And ask him, what in the world is going on? You, are you sick? Why, why aren't you coming? He said, well, I'm going to, he said, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that uh, I was very offended that I wasn't selected to be one of the deacons. He said, I feel like, you know, I'm just as qualified as anybody else and that I, based on what I've done, that I, I, I deserve that. And I looked at him and I said, his name was Bud, and I said, Bud, you just gave me all the proof I need to prove you're not qualified for that position. If that's your attitude, you're not qualified for that position. And some folks, you know, get the idea, well, I want to do it, and I think I could do it, 
but they don't have enough wisdom to just step aside. These guys were wise enough to know we're not fit for battle right now at least. And so they stayed behind and notice what their work was. Verse 24, it says they tarried by the stuff. You see, the same thing over in chapter 25 and verse number 13 shows that was a common practice because while they went out to battle, some had to be appointed to stay with the stuff. They couldn't carry everything with them when they went to battle, so somebody had to stay there to guard the gear and the supplies, their belongings, while others went out into battle. Warfare requires a lot of different duties. Alexander McLaren wrote many years ago, service may be different in kind, but one in essence. And when it comes to the Lord's work, the point is the same. You know that we're all doing different things, but we're trying to accomplish the same thing. And any soldier will tell you that the supply line is just as important as the front line. In fact, I read that during World War II, did you know that only somewhere around 30% of the troops were combat units? Think of that. 70% were in support. 30% were out there on the front line in the combat units, you see. The same thing's true when it comes to the Lord's church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, in speaking to the church, likens it to a body. A body that, you know, uh, that has hands and feet and fingers and eyes and ears and so forth. And he says that God has set some in the body. In other words, it's God that puts us in the body, in the church. And we all have a different function. We're not all alike. We do different things. My right hand can do some things my left hand can't do. I can do some things with my feet that I can't do with my hands. The eye is not an ear and the ear is not an eye. Every part of the body has a different function. And we need to understand that as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the Lord's church, we have a function to perform and we ought not, we ought not to consider ourselves as being less important than somebody else because we're doing something different than what they're doing. We're all involved in the same work. And it's crucial that we understand that. And that brings us to the next point, which is their worth. Notice verse 21 and verse 22 again, because their worth wasn't discerned by some of these people. It tells us there, the 400 which had gone out, they said, we're not going to divide any of the spoils with them. They can take their wives, they can take their children and hit the trail and get out of here. I mean, to me, there was a bit of bitterness even in that, don't you think? Notice, notice exactly what he says here. And take their wife and their children that they may lead them away and depart. They see no value in the contribution that these people had made. And I think it's noteworthy, if you paid attention, you'll notice that these men are referred to, notice, as wicked men. Now they were a part of the army. They were out there on the front line. They were doing battle. 
But they're wicked men in this sense, and that is the shamefulness of them sinning when they refuse to give people the credit they deserve. And I think it's a terrible sin whenever we as God's people fail to appreciate the contribution that others make. Peter Marshall, the late Peter Marshall, was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. On one occasion, standing before the Senate, told a story, a true story, called the Keeper of the Spring. He said the Keeper of the Spring was a quiet forest dweller who lived high above in an Austrian village along the eastern slope of the Alps. The old gentleman had been hired many years before by a young town councilman who saw the need and his job high up there in the mountain was to clean out the water sources there, the little pools of water that eventually would flow down the mountainside and through the crevices and what have you. And so regularly and silently he patrolled that area there in the hills. He would remove the leaves and the branches and wiped away all of the silt, the things that otherwise would choke up and contaminate the flow of water. The village eventually became a, an attraction for, uh, for people on vacation. The graceful swans floated out in the water and, and, and the water supplied the, the power for the wheels of the mill that turned and supplied the power for the, uh, for the businesses there. The farms were naturally irrigated by all of this. The restaurants were so located as to get a beautiful view of the, of, of the scenery there. And so it, it was just absolutely, absolutely a prosperous time. But it so happened that by early autumn and of one year that the, the, the city councilmen met together and they're trying to go through the books. And all of a sudden it's discovered by someone, well, what is this expenditure here? The keeper of the spring, who, who is that? Well, that's an old man way up there in the hills and all he does is go around and he just cleans out the the springs and what have you. And so he decides, you know, that, well, this is a waste of money. We don't need him. And so they terminated his employment. Well, things went along just fine for a little while. But by autumn, the leaves are falling. The branches are breaking off. And all of a sudden, they noticed the water had sort of a yellowish tint to it. A few days went by and it's, it's turning brown. And then all of a sudden it has, has, a, has a very offensive odor to it. So they meet to discuss tourism is dropping off now. So they mean, what in the world are we going to do? We depend on tourists coming through this area. The slimy film that's covering the the wheel on the mill, it, it, you know, it, it's just causing a, a whole breakdown in town. Finally, to their embarrassment, they confessed that they were wrong and they uh, rehired the old gentleman to go 
back to his work, and in a, just a short while, the water cleared up, and everything was good again. The point is, folks, here is someone up there in the mountains, unknown to the people down there in the valley that's reaping the benefits of what he's doing. And every day faithfully, he's out there picking up the twigs and the logs and the leaves and whatever it might be. No one, they don't know about him. The ones that do don't really appreciate what he's doing. It's just an expenditure that we can get along without until all of a sudden they have to do without him. And there's so many times we don't appreciate people like we should until they're dead and they're gone. For years and years, I had a quote written in my Bible before it was destroyed in the flood by Edward Everett Hale. And it says, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything. But still I can do something, and because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do something I can do. That ought to be the attitude of every Christian. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And because I can do something, then I'm not going to sit back and let what I can't do hinder me from doing what I could do. So back to our story, we see these 200 men there faithfully guarding the stuff, taking care of the supplies. We bring that down to our situation today in the church. It's those behind the scenes without any fanfare that others don't know about, quietly making their contributions. Nobody knows about it but the treasure. I don't look at the books. I could, but I don't want to. Nobody knows about it but the, you and the treasure in God and the money that they give to help support the work. And nobody knows about the hours that are spent by others who perhaps could not give so much, but they can contribute in other ways. Might be like Daniel out here on a, on the church van picking up someone. Be easy to say, I don't have time for that. Might be like the Sunday school teachers that week after week that faithfully prepare themselves to teach the Word of God to your children. And to you, by the way. And that list goes on and on to those that are working with the children, those that are in the sound room, those that are doing things that, that basically that, that they don't get any praise for. But all of those things are just as necessary as anything else in the church. They didn't realize the worth of these men, but David did. And notice again what David said in our text. He said, as his part is that goeth down to the battle, that is the soldiers, the warriors out there on the front line, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part, they shall divide, they shall share alike. David understood, and believe me, if anyone understands the importance of, of followers, it's leaders. 
Because no leader can be successful without faithful followers. David knew how valuable these men were, and David is insisting that they get the same reward as the others. Let me tell you, one of the, one of the greatest marks of great men is their thoughtfulness of others. The Apostle Paul is the best example of that I know in his writings. He mentions others without fail. People that we've never heard of. He doesn't tell their story necessarily, but he reminds us of people that labored in obscurity. Those that were not known by others. And remember, it was the Spirit of God that led Paul to include their name in the Scripture. And it's so sad that deserving people are so often overlooked. Everybody does better when they know they're appreciated. I'll guarantee you, every one of these women, you know, that cook, that you know, they appreciate it when somebody says, "Well, that was a great meal. I, I, I loved it. It was delicious." Regardless of what you're doing, you'll do better if you are appreciated. I noticed a video on Facebook this last week, and it showed the. Uh, an elementary school that surprised their janitor. He'd been there with a long time, and they they surprised him with an appreciation party. And and it showed all of the kids in the room, and showed the the janitor being ushered in the room. And he opens the door, and there's all of those kids and a cake, and they're celebrating. And he's standing there with tears in his eyes. Nobody had ever showed him any appreciation before. I love what that great theologian Diana Baldridge said. This was her comment. That's a compliment, by the way. Here's what she said. Everyone who does a good job should be appreciated and thanked. And I said, Amen. Everyone who does a good job should be appreciated and thanked. When's the last time you thanked some of our musicians, for example? Our sound room guys, our Sunday school teachers. They need to know that they are appreciated, whatever it is that they're doing. Because they'll do a better job if they know that's the case. Now notice Diana said, those who do a good job. Well, in case you don't know what a good job is, I'm going to tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let the Lord tell you. This is what it means to do a good job. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Let me tell you, His reward is better than man's recognition. There have been so many people that did not, did not get any praise for what they're doing. No one showed them any appreciation and they gave up. They quit. They got discouraged. Don't you dare do that. God's going to reward you on the basis of your faithfulness. Not how famous you are. Nobody else might recognize what you do, but let me tell you, God's taking notes. 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I just want to say thank you to all of those of you, regardless of what you do. I want to say thank you. But that's not the whole purpose of this message. I could have done that in 30 seconds. Maybe not appropriately, but I could have got up here and said thank you. Hopefully, this message will be a reminder to every single one of us of how important God's work is. Like the keeper of the spring. I suspect there were days that he wondered, is this really all that important? He could have decided that he's going to skip a few days or take off a week, or he could have even said, you know, I'm going to resign down there in the valley. They're all having fun. Here I am up here waiting around in the creek and picking up leaves and branches. What I'm doing is not really important. Nobody knows about it anyway, so I think I'll just quit. This ought to be a challenge to every one of us to be faithful. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, let me explain to you, you can't do anything for God that is acceptable. Now, I know maybe some of us think, well, how dare you say something like that? Because, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I'm really a good person. No, you're not. You're a sinner. Just like every other person is a sinner. You're either a sinner that is saved by the grace of God or you're a sinner on His way to a devil's hell. One of the two. And there's nothing that sinful man can do that's pleasing in the sight of God. It's not until you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior that you're able to do anything acceptable to God. But the moment that you're saved, the rest of your life ought to be devoted to pleasing your Heavenly Father. Stop comparing yourself to other people. It might be that you can't do what, what they're able to do. It might be you don't have the ability. It might be you don't have the opportunity. But you just can't do it. It doesn't make any difference. Do what you can where you are with what you have the best you can with cheerfulness and out of love for the glory of God. And I don't care what else happens in your life whenever the time comes for them to bury you. They can tell your story on the tombstone by saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That makes anyone a success in life. No Christian has to be a failure. 400 guys on the other side said, we don't think we ought to share with them. They wasn't among us when we went into the heat of battle. They were back there, you know. And David said, no, no, that's not the way it's going to be. They're going to get exactly what you got. I'm really convinced when we get to heaven, you know, a lot of times preachers, you know, they, they serve kind of in the limelight. Everybody sees what they do and so forth, and, and other people in the church, but it's the behind-the-scenes people. I, I really believe whenever the rewards are handed out, there'll be some little gray-headed grandmothers up there in heaven that'll get a better re 
reward than some of us pastors. Because they were faithful to do what they could where they were with what they had. They were faithful. Sometimes, you know, we think about how difficult it is in being a pastor or being a missionary. Let me tell you something more difficult than that. That's being a pastor's wife. Because she has to live with that imperfect guy that everybody else, you know, might admire or whatever. And, you know, it's easy for Brother Kenneth and I to put on our Sunday go to meeting clothes and uh, put a smile on our face and uh, put our best foot forward. But our wives see us like we really are at home. I mean, they see us whenever we lose our temper. They, they see us whenever we're not so kind. And, and to, to think about a preacher's wife keeping the home fires burning, keeping everything going. A lot of people, you know, knew me over the years when I was traveling, preaching in revival meetings and revival posters posted up and uh, posters in the newspaper and the radio uh, program and all that. They knew about me. They didn't know about my wife, but she was the one that kept everything going. While I was going, she kept everything going. I'd come in on a late Sunday night or Monday morning. She'd have my clothes done up and ready to go and pack my suitcase and kiss her and the kids goodbye and off again. She's the one that took them to the dentist and to the doctor and on and on and on and on. And I mention all, all of that just to remind you that whenever you look around on a Sunday morning and you think about, you know, the, the bills being paid... It might not seem like a big deal to you, but just wait till you don't have the money to pay them. It becomes a big deal in a hurry. Thank God for those that step up and say, I'm, I, you know, that, that's a need I can take care of and I'm going to do it. You send your kids off to Sunday school. You ought to thank God there's somebody that loves the Lord enough that they're there every week to teach those children. Amen? Let's not only be more appreciative of those that serve God, but let's accept the challenge that faithfulness to God is the most important thing in our life. And whether we ever get a word of praise from anybody else, let us live as it were to hear Jesus say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That will make up for everything else. Let's stand together as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank You this morning, Lord, for those that love You and are faithful to Your cause. Those that love Your church. That can be depended upon to be here when the doors are open. That can be depended upon to do their part. We thank You for each and every one of them. We thank You, Lord, for the privilege of being able to have a part in the work of Your kingdom. To think with all of this going on in the universe that Your sight is focused upon us, Your servants. And You've promised great is Your reward in heaven. God, help us to not grow weary in well-doing, but to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that we might hear You say, Well done, Thou good and faithful servant. 
And Heavenly Father, for that man, woman, some boy or girl that's here today, they've never really received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I pray this morning that you'll speak to their heart. May the Holy Spirit convict them of their sinfulness and show them their need. And most of all, reveal to them the answer for their problem, which is Jesus. May they trust Him before they leave this place today. For we ask it all in His name. Amen.